Hello, Jan Stalkic here. Welcome to the next episode of Tax Stories Podcast. Today, as our guest, we will have one of the brightest brains of taxation, professor of economics at the University of Michigan, Joel Slemrod, and the deputy director of the Fiscal Affairs Department at IMF, Michael Keane. Today, we will speak about their new book that is out already for several months. It's called Rebellion, Rascals and Revenue. These are funny and historic tax stories from around the world over the the last millennia. Among other topics, we will talk about how they started to deal with the taxation. They will suggest some non-tax related reading. Of course, we will talk a lot about their new book and we will have some helicopter view on some taxation issues that are relevant now and what are the takeaways from the stories in their book that the governments could uh, take into consideration now. So stay tuned. Here we go. A quick intro. I'm a tax partner in uh, tax practice in Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Belarus. Have you been in this part of the world? No, no, not really. Um, spent a fair time in Finland. That's closest, I guess. Well, I've been I've been to um, Estonia. I've been to Lithuania. I haven't been to Belarus, although that's where my uh, ancestors come from. Oh, so uh, but I haven't made it back. Wow, I went to Belarus a long time ago in the mid 90s. One of the most uh, moving missions I ever had, I think, was to, <clears throat> was to Belarus. That was quite something. Yeah. Why? Just as a place, kind of weight of history, really, in Belarus. You just feel it all the time, at least I did. I remember the translator we had, the interpreter we had, um, was talking about the fallout from Chernobyl. And how it had affected her and she had to have a child taken every six months to be checked for cancer all these kind of things and it was um 95 well it's a kind of you know interesting place in many ways right i think belarus it still is yeah it's tough this morning i heard the speech by the state president saying that if you are not getting medals in tokyo then you can uh, stay there and uh, not return oh yeah I remember that a lot of the tax policy was made by telegrams from the president. I remember her. Great. I will start with a short uh, introduction, although the word short is a little bit uh, misleading here because uh, I cannot get short introduction for you both guys because I saw that Joel has a CV on more than 40 pages. But to, to cut it short as much as I can, Joel is a professor of economics at the University of Michigan, studied at the Princeton University, London School of Economics, uh, has a PhD in economics from Harvard University, countless books and publications, including uh, appearances in New York Times, CNBC, Fox News, etc. Joel is from uh, New Jersey. Joel has written the titles are Taxing Ourselves, Tax Systems, Taxes in America, Taxing Corporate Income in the 21st Century, Tax Policy in the Real World, Does Atlas Shrug, The Economic Consequences of Taxing the Rich, The Rethinking Estate and Gift Taxation, Tax Progressivity, and Income Inequality, 
and of course the latest book uh, rebellion rascals and revenue which we are uh, going to talk about some more later on an interesting fact is uh, this uh, ig nobel prize i came across uh, for a paper concluding that people find a way to postpone their death if that would qualify them for a lower rate of inheritance tax and the prize is to honor achievements that first make people laugh and then make them think. Joel, is there is there a story behind this uh, prize? There's a, more than one story behind that prize. Um, it began as a um, serious academic research question, how taxes affect people's behavior. And economists have studied lots and lots of different aspects of behavior. My graduate student, Wojtek Kopczyk from Poland, who um, is now a professor at Columbia University. He was a PhD student of mine at the time, and we were doing research on how taxes, uh, estate taxes affect behavior. And I think more or less simultaneously, we realized we have the data available to study this question of whether anticipated changes in the estate tax actually changed when people die, or at least when they told the tax authority when they died. Um, and we um, looked into the question and noticed that other social scientists, not economists, had written about this and had said that, oh, it seems like in China, uh, elderly people postpone their deaths so they can be with their family for the holiday. And um, so it seemed like it was possible. And uh, we looked at the data and sure enough, there is evidence that people rich enough to be subject to a state tax, some of them anyway, would postpone their death to save their heirs on taxes, and others would actually accelerate their death, although that happens less often, to save their heirs on a state tax, um, depending on whether the tax rates are going to go it's going to go up or down. So that's how it started. But my favorite story about this is shorter. Many years later, I was being vetted for security clearance. Uh, and a, um, somebody came to my office at Michigan to ask me some questions and had my uh, CV in front of him. And he's kind of leafing through it. And at one point, he looks up and he says to me, Professor Slumrod, I see that you've won a Nobel Prize. And I said, well, not exactly a Nobel Prize. Uh, I found it amusing that uh, he thought I would mention a Nobel Prize on like page 13 of my CV rather than have it in <laughs> bold headlines on the front page. Uh, also, I would like to have a brief intro to Michael Keane, Deputy Deputy Director of the Fiscal Affairs Department at IMF. And uh, previously, uh, Michael was... Uh, professor of economics at the University of Essex and visiting professor at Kyoto and Queen's universities, has led technical assistance missions to nearly 30 countries on a wide range of issues of tax policy, consulted World Bank, European Commission and private sector, served on the board of the National Tax Association in the US, was on the editorial boards 
of many journals, of course, is an author of not only the latest book that I already mentioned, Rebellion, Rascals and Revenue, that we are going to talk about, but also the modern VAT, taxing profits in a global economy, taxation of petroleum and minerals, changing customs, Sweden's welfare state, digital revolutions in uh, public finance, and of course, countless publications and and, uh, presentations. Have I missed anything important from uh, both of you? I don't think so. I think the word (laughs) tax figured prominently for both of us, which gives a pretty good impression. Right. We started to talk a little bit about this Ig Nobel Prize. When I read your book, I had a feeling that you both uh, with this book might be a bit tired of the serious issues surrounding every of us uh, and trying to have some fun in the profession. But at the same time, it's a little bit like this Ig Nobel Prize that uh, first it makes people laugh and then make them think. Is that along your lines of thinking while creating this book? I would say that's a pretty good summary, actually. I think, um, yeah, the books have emerged over over many years when um, Joel and I for many years were exchanging kind of weird, interesting stories about tanks. And uh, eventually, it was actually my partner, Geraldine, decides or suggested we make it into a book. Um, and it occurred to us that, that, yeah, there's a lot of kind of interesting, weird stories. But more than that, we could use these stories to actually convey some basic tax principles, principles of both policy administration Mm. in a way that was kind of entertaining and fun, because I think we do both feel that really our our profession, of particular tax economists, haven't really done a great job of conveying more generally some of the basic ideas that we take for granted, ideas of um, excess burden, the kind of collateral damage of taxation, questions about who really bears the burden of taxation. So there were all kind of... um, issues that we thought we could illuminate in a in a kind of enjoyable way um by using some of these weird tax stories some of the some of the weird some of the tax stories probably don't have any useful tax lesson at all but are nonetheless just um just fun so i think you 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 describe pretty much what, what we're trying to do so we are trying to be entertaining fun but we're also trying to be rigorous in a kind of hopefully not too visible way and uh, truthful and accurate and convey some, as we say, some basic principles in a, in a relatively painless way. We think of it a, a partly as a gift to people who are in the tax business, because although Mick and I find it fascinating, we've heard that other people think taxation is sort of dry, and boring. And um, so f- we hope that from now on, when people in the tax business are in at cocktail parties, they can tell these horrible, fascinating, weird stories. So at the end of it, people will be thinking, man, I wish I were in the tax business. This is great mm-hmm. fun. This was along my line of thinking for creating this podcast. And uh, oh. is that the reason why you decided to join a podcast from uh, the other part of the world? Well, we're trying to spread the word. Uh, to people like you and and people um, like in your audience, and so we um, we're happy to get the opportunity for people to learn about our book. Of course, we want to encourage people to buy it and read it and tell their friends about it. But um, we think it's fascinating and interesting, and we hope we can we can convince more people of that. And I guess one nice thing about taxation is it's kind of universal, right? Everybody has the 
experience it with taxation, it affects everybody's life. So in a way, everybody connects in some way to taxation. And so Joel says we're trying to kind of make that um, that interaction, that intersection a bit more both entertaining and something that people would be comfortable thinking about. And of course, we're always um, we're always looking for more stories. So we we hope that um, through through the podcast, where you know we, maybe we'll find out some some more weird stories from uh, from other parts of the world because I'm sure there are we're sure there are plenty wherever we look. There are some bizarre, informative tax stories. So we're we're very much in the market for more stories. Even though we've been working on this for a good seven or eight years and and um, collecting stories for more than that we still hear regularly from people who read the book and or hear us talking about the book we still hear more stories we hadn't heard of so i i think it's going to be an ongoing uh, collection for us great and uh, the previous guests of our podcast have told some fascinating stories as well so i encourage to have a listen if you have time at some point. Before turning to the book, uh, I wanted to ask some personal questions, if I may. That if uh, right now, as we speak, there is Tokyo Olympics opening ceremony, will you follow any of the events and uh, do you practice any sports yourself? Yeah, I just called over to, um, I'm at home, I called over to my wife that the opening ceremonies are on TV, so she might be watching it now. Yeah, I uh, follow sports, so I imagine I will uh, will watch some. I uh, do less sports now than I used to, but back in the day, I um, played tennis and played golf and basketball. These days, um, I mostly walk. <laughs> so I've, my uh, my athletic uh, endeavors have gotten more restricted as time has gone on. For me, I confess I probably won't be watching much of the Olympics. I think my partner will, so I'll sort of politely sit there and feign interest and try to stay awake. I'm I'm more a kind of a football guy, and I'm a Chelsea supporter, but if that means anything. So we've had a great year at Chelsea. We won the European Champions League. Um, I'm English. So we have our usual disappointment following the Euros. So I'm kind of uh, burnt out a little bit on sport at the moment. So I'm um, I'm looking forward to the England winning something in about 50 years again from now. So um, I'm a little burnt out on sport at the moment. But I, I'm trying to play a bit of tennis now and again, very badly. So hopefully I will get the chance to play golf with Joel together some sometime. Oh. And uh, Joel, I, I saw that you are not a big social media fan. Is there a reason why? Not really. Um, it's not that I'm not a fan. I just haven't devoted the energy to learn about it and get involved. But that's uh, certainly an accurate observation. How you both started to work with uh, tax issues? Never heard this story from you, Mick. Well, I think it's a very kind of boring story, really. I think I was um, studying economics, at, uh, finishing up at Oxford, looking for a job. And there was um, uh, my supervisor was a gentleman called John Kay, who people may know of, who sort of writes quite prominently now for the others. And he was then establishing or kind of built, putting new life into something called the Institute for Fiscal Studies in London. And basically, he offered me a job. And uh, that was it. So I think it was, but I think probably it was more John Kay's influence. He was very much working on on tax issues at that stage. And he was a very inspiring uh, mentor and teacher. And uh, I guess the the bug just bit me, bit me there, I think. So pretty, pretty simple. How about you, Joel? 
Yeah. So I was, as I mentioned, an undergraduate economics major, and one of my uh, favorite professors taught public finance, and um, he got me interested in it. And um, one reason I always liked the field is I liked the fact that um, things I was studying or working on would could be on the front page of the newspaper the next day that it was it was very much a, a topic that a lot of people cared about and i, I always um, enjoyed that and up till today uh, the stuff that i'm working on is very much the stuff of headlines in um, in the states now who is the professor joe um it, uh, his name was uh Jim Oles, O-H-L-S. I think he left, well, I know, he left academia soon after uh, I had his class at Princeton. He worked at Mathematica for most of his Uh career. Are there any books uh, normally on your reading table besides the ones on tax uh, that you would like to recommend to our listeners? Well, Mick just sent me an email yesterday about a book he's reading. I don't know if he wants to. Uh... <laughs> it was an email to warn you not to read it. So maybe. <laughs> so I guess, well, I don't know. I guess I normally have a, some, some fiction and a history book going on at the same time or history and politics. So I'm reading a book. Um, I can't remember the exact title by this guy, Fukuyama on the growth of political order or or whatever, which is pretty much fun. Um, on the novel side, I guess, because I've just given up on one because it was so awful. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a, of a novel I've read recently that I would that I would recommend to someone. I can't remember the title of it. It's, um, uh, it's a novel. I, I'm very bad at remembering novels. It was a novel about, um, I think it's something like The Gentleman in Moscow. It's a novel oh, I, about, I've read that. Oh, yeah. That's, That's a, a great, great book. Okay, yeah. you you did that one. That's a great book, right? That's the that's the right, best. You book must know. You must know this one, right? A gentleman in Moscow. I can mm-hmm. look it up as we're as yeah. we're speaking. Yeah. Is, um, is that the Red Notice by Bill Browder? No, no. no. Um, I'll tell you in a second. Yeah, that's a great it's book. A, I've recommended that to many friends. It's called yeah. A Gentleman in Moscow, and oh. the author is Amor Tolles, T O W L E S. Right, right. I recommend it to all of your listeners. Yeah. And uh, do you sometimes listen to some podcasts as well? If yes, then uh, which ones? You could probably guess my answer since I don't do social media. <laughs> I also don't do podcasts. Uh, all right. Actually, I do, but I, I mainly um, usually listen to history podcasts. So there's this guy, Mike Duncan, who does a series called Revolutions. Uh, he began with a long series of podcasts on the um, <clears throat> on Rome, on ancient Rome. Uh, now he's done a series on various revolutions, kind of the English Revolution, French Revolution, American Revolution. Now he's doing the um, uh, the Russian Revolution. So yeah, I, I listen to uh, to podcasts. I'm also getting a bit more into audible books than I was, partly because our book is also available as an audio book. So I listened a bit to that, and I thought, well, actually, audio books can be quite. Um, entertaining. I also read history and um, some fiction, but it turns out that most history books have a tax angle. So the last history book I read is called Alaric the Goth, and it's about the fall of the Roman Empire, told from the point of view not so much of the Romans, but of the Goths and their leader, Alaric. Um, And as I was reading it, sure enough, there was this great story about how a Roman Empire granted citizenship to people who lived outside of uh, Rome. And some people think he did it because 
it raised revenue because if you were a citizen, you owe, you owed inheritance tax. If you were not a citizen, you did not. Now, Mick and I um, have not investigated how, how true that is, but it is just amazing in how often in history books tax issues come up. I fully agree. <laughs> we came to that conclusion with uh, several of our guests uh, of, of this podcast as well. Then uh, going back to the book itself, you briefly told who should be interested or who might be interested in the book, but what would be your top choice of a story if you need to choose one from the book? Well, um, I can see both of you as we're talking, so I can... I can pick a tax that all of us could relate to, which is um, Peter the Great's beard tax. When he decided to westernize Russia in 1698, he introduced many policies, but one was a tax on beards, the intent being that he had noticed that many of his nobles had long beards, but the countries he wanted Russia to emulate, England and France, this was not true. So one of the ways he tried to get his nobles to look more like the Brits and the French was to put a tax on beards. If you were a noble and out in public, you had to ha display a token, which basically said, I paid my beard tax. And if not, you were subject to heavy penalties. You can buy a replica of this token on the internet. And a few years ago, I sent it to Mick as a holiday present. This is back when only Mick had a beard and I didn't. Now, <laughs> now the incidence of the tax, uh, as we say in economics, would be more widespread. And for you, Mick? Um, well, there's a lot to choose from. I think I like, um, it always makes me smile, a story about the bachelor tax and that, uh, <clears throat> particularly in Argentina in the uh, 19th century, because a lot of Countries, you know, going back to uh, ancient Rome and so on, have had particular taxes on bachelors on the grounds. Maybe that, you know, if you're, um, if you're a bachelor, you have, uh, in some sense, higher ability to pay, uh, as things were in those days. Uh, maybe to encourage people to, have, uh, to be married, have children. So you can see some kind of rationale for the tax. But um, in Argentina, and maybe other places too, some, some bright spark had the thought, well, what do we do about men who've um, proposed to a woman that she's turned him down? So they've really done everything they can not to be bachelors, but they're unhappy in love and they're stuck with being a bachelor. So what do we do? Well, the answer was we give an exemption. So we give an exemption if you can prove that you have proposed to a woman and she's turned you down. So basically, they're what you tax people will know what's going to happen next. So there emerged a class of um, professional lady rejectors who, for a small sum, would swear and sign whatever form they needed to that you had proposed to them uh, and they had turned you down. So I think I like to think of this um, kindly soul who uh, created this tax exemption. But as so often, there is a lesson about, well, tax exemptions may be well-intentioned, well but they uh, can be pretty much open to abuse. So I kind of like that one. Another lesson of both these stories is um, that often taxes aren't really, some taxes aren't there to raise revenue. They're there in order to change behavior. Peter the Great wanted most of his nobles to shave their beard. In the bachelor tax, uh, it was designed mostly to get young men to marry. Uh, and of course, that is very a very prominent aspect of many taxes today: carbon taxes, taxes on congested roads. They raise revenue, but 
their primary purpose is to get people and businesses to change behavior. I can feel the readership will uh, increase also after these stories. Is there a tax-related story that comes to your mind that is not in, in your book? So there were a couple that were just so awful in terms of abusive taxation that we left out and we won't even talk about. There were some truly horrible taxes in history that uh, we really can't, you know, it'd just be too upsetting to mention. But other than that, Joel, what, what did we leave out? Well, some um, we didn't leave out, but some stories uh, have, they're more recent. Um, we learned about or they happened after we uh, finished the book. For example, um, in the U.S., there is a recent episode where um, the federal government uh, is giving these huge grants to state governments uh, if during the COVID era. One of the uh, conditions was that states couldn't use uh, these grants to just lower their own taxes. And I don't know if it's happened, uh, but some state attorney generals in Republican states threatened to sue the federal government for for restricting uh, the use of these funds. And the, the general point here is often constitutions uh, that countries have constrained the tax policies the countries can adopt. And, I, and sometimes probably not for good. Uh, we tell stories about the constitutions of India and Pakistan, which arguably constrain appropriate tax policy. So yeah, there are a couple things that, you know, these things keep coming up. When we write the second edition of the book, which probably won't be for another 50 years, uh, we have to include these new stories. I see that you have done a huge amount of work uh, writing this book. After all this work, are there any takeaways you see that uh, the governments need to take into consideration also nowadays? Well, in the last chapter, we um, we collect the lessons that permeate the rest of the book. And so we end with 11 lessons um, uh, that we have learned from thinking about taxes through the millennia. I'll just mention one, which is that um, governments should not underestimate the uh, creativity and the willingness of taxpayers to find ways to um, minimize the tax burden, either through legal means avoidance or illegal means evasion. One of the chapters of the book goes into all the amazing avoidance devices that we can we learn about through history. And with that is that in designing tax policy, governments should think early on about how the tax is going to be enforced. You can't just announce the tax, sit back and let the money roll in. You got to think about what people and businesses will do to avoid it and uh, try to get the enforcement regime, a good enforcement regime in place right away. Just maybe just to mention one other lesson, which I think is, um, is kind of straightforward, but can't be stressed enough, which is the um, this kind of game of how, how how people choose to name taxes is something that we really need to kind of train people to, to look beyond because, um, you know, on the, on the, as economists, of course, we, we're always keen to stress that one has to be thoughtful about who really bears the burden of the tax. You have to think through how the market will adjust and certainly be careful about the labels that people with particular interests will attach to taxes to try to persuade you who the real incidence uh, who the real incidence falls on 
uh, in a way that serves their own interest. And everybody plays this game. Governments, lobbyists, everybody plays civil society. Everybody plays these games. The classic example is the uh, it's in the US. The policy of one um, pressure group basically always to refer to the estate and gift tax as the death tax, even though, as Joel will explain or will tell us, death is neither necessary nor sufficient for paying the uh, for paying the estate duty. And this this label of the the death tax has really stuck and seems perhaps you know one can believe it's had some impact on on the policy debate, even though as one of our colleagues points out, in terms of the way it affects the attractions of being alive and being dead, um, you could also call it the life subsidy, uh, which would give it um, maybe a different different flavour. Another example is the the way that. Um, some groups have labelled a financial transactions tax, a tax that would be on all kinds of financial transactions, have chosen to label that the Robin Hood tax, presumably to, to convey some idea that the real incidence of this is going to fall on well-paid bankers and people in the financial sector. When it's not at all clear, that would be the case. The real burden might well be borne by ordinary savers. So, so I think, again, and it seems a game that people play more and more, is my impression, uh, of, of giving fancy names to taxes. So it's not always easy to know who really bears the burden of the tax, but at least we should all get into the habit of really not looking at um, how some particular interest group chooses to, to label it. But we have nine other lessons and other great stories, so we'll, um, they're, they're all in the book. But you have to get to the end to get to those, I'm afraid, so yeah. And the book is available on uh, many platforms. I, I, I think the easiest uh, for readers is to go to Amazon and uh, buy one. I wanted to ask a question that I don't have an answer for myself about the progressive taxation. And there's a chapter in the book as well about progressive taxation. Do you support the idea of progressive income tax? Basically, it means the more you earn the higher tax rate you pay. That means that those who push themselves to learn more or to risk in business more have to pay higher rates than those who choose to take it easy and go with the flow. Well, let me take, let me start on that one. Um, and first I'll answer your question directly. So I do support um, the idea that uh, modern tax system should be progressive in the way you uh, said that the average tax rate on income should be higher the more income people have. I, I support that, but I want to say whether one supports that or not depends on some questions of economics, such as how does a progressive tax affect people's willingness to work hard, to uh, get educated, do all the things one needs to do to earn more income. It depends on that, but it also depends on one's values about inequality. And that's not really an economics question. We Economists can help measure inequality, talk about the implications of policies for inequality, but the value a society places on inequality is, is really a question not for economists, but for for philosophers and ethicists, uh, etc. So when I say I'm in favor of it, it that depends both on my views on the economic questions, but also uh, on my values. No, I think Joe, from my side, I think Joel puts it very well. Very little to to add. Even to note that you know a lot of the um, even if you have a flat tax, the kind that you know many countries adopted after the the Russian flat tax reform, to the extent that has an exempt amount, that's a progressive tax in the, in the sense that you. So again, we always I think have to be 
careful to distinguish between the marginal tax rate, which tax on an additional dollar or euro, and, and the average. Um, but Joel's quite right, it becomes, a, it's a, it becomes an ethical issue at some point. Plus, of course, I think we're always very keen to say that one should look at the whole tax system, look at the impact of the income tax, the VAT, all kinds of taxes, as well as on the spending side. So to some extent, you know, how progressive one tax taken on its own uh, may look is not necessarily the key, the key question. So, you know, many people who like progressive taxation, for example, would support a very strong single rate value added tax, because even though that is not progressive in itself, it may help to build a more progressive spending side, for example. So, um, so again, I think one has to look at the whole, the whole system, but, um, but Joel puts it very nicely in terms of this, um, uh, the role that ethics uh, and um, individual judgments come to play. Still on the progressive taxation, uh, Piketty is suggesting to tax wealth with uh, progressive rates because it grows faster than the GDP of countries. Do you agree with those ideas? Well, uh, the wealth taxes uh, was on the front pages of in in the U.S. in 2019 because two. Uh, candidates for the Democratic presidential nomination favored it. Um, this is Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, two American senators. So they had a proposal for wealth taxes, annual wealth taxes, with rates going as high as 6 7 or 8% for the very, very wealthy. So it's been a hot topic. I mean, they weren't nominated, um, obviously, and they're not president. And uh, President Biden has tax proposals which would increase progressivity, but which would not do it through a wealth tax. Let me just say, this comes back to uh, this question of constitutionality, because not only were economists involved in this debate, but so were constitutional lawyers, because it's not at all clear that a, a federal wealth tax would uh, be constitutional in the United States and so might be overturned on legal grounds, even before economists uh, get to weigh in. I wouldn't want to weigh in on the wealth tax issue, but maybe just to, um, to make a couple of points. One is that um, this clearly ties in very much with another of the the lessons of the book, which is the um, the whole question of international tax coordination, how far that can should be taken, because it's kind of hard to see uh, wealth taxes working without a considerable degree of um, of uh, coordination or at least cooperation. And also, of course, many people would say, well, um, maybe before we think about the wealth tax, we should try to fix capital income taxes that we have at the moment in terms of treatment of capital gains and so on. So there is a there's also, I think, that aspect to to the to the debate and we, we really want to um, invest in new instruments which as Joel says may have particular problems say in the US uh, maybe administrative issues elsewhere or do we want to um, really bite the bullet on some of the taxes that we that we already have in terms of making them um, do their jobs more effectively. Mike, you were consulting more than 30 countries around the world. Do you see some typical problems with the tax systems in Eastern Europe? And let's say if you would be in charge of tax system in a small country like Latvia with 2 million people, what 
would you do? Would you change anything? Of course, you probably don't know the details of the system, but do you see some typical problems that can be cured? I think many of many of the tax systems in the in the in the region actually have some some attractive properties, as far as I understand it, in terms of relative relative simplicity. In terms more generally of the of the issues that we um, that we face, I think the VAT is 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 an issue more or less in in all countries in different ways and probably you know um particularly one might argue in, in sort of older europe in a way with these kind of rather old uh vats and beginning to show their age but even if we go to developing countries where the vat is a is a major source of revenue there's often room for uh improvement in the structuring of the vat particularly i think now given that many countries are going to be looking for additional sources of, of revenue coming out of covid and covid is really i think heightening many of the tax problem or tax issues that were there before uh, the pandemic so issues of vat design of course there's a whole corporate tax issue that uh, that we know is getting a lot of uh, a lot of headlines uh, headlines these days so i i think there are newer issues coming up uh, of course there are issues to do with carbon taxation which kind of dates back to uh, or goes back to the the theme Joel was mentioning of using taxes for corrective primarily for corrective purposes uh, in the spirit of Peter the Great. But that, I think, is becoming an increasing issue uh, in, in many countries. And it obviously does have some potential revenue advantages. So, so there are a variety of issues around there. This current issue of border carbon adjustments, I think, is going to be a big one for the, for the coming period. I wouldn't want to delve too much into, into the region, but it's, I think certainly when you look more globally, there are many common issues, whole whole issues about um, digitalization, the impact that might have on tax systems, where I think, you know, the, 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 the region you're talking about clearly has many stellar examples of, of how to how to approach those, those problems. But the, there's a great sort of commonality of, uh, of problems, I think, maybe, maybe more than one might suspect across uh, advanced emerging and developing countries. And make you mentioned the VAT. Do you see this VAT fraud and lack of neutrality sometimes problem? How to solve that? You both are based in the US. Is the US sales tax uh, system better from your perspective? Or do you see some good answer there? Let me go first on that one. So yes, clearly the VAT has problems. There have been fraud problems, often very clever frauds. Uh, sometimes you're kind of quite impressed with how intellectually clever the frauds are. Um, but I think it's true that any tax uh, is going to have these fraud problems. And we know there are various estimates of the of the VAT gap, a lot of estimates for, for Europe. And it's not clear, at least to me, that the VAT gap is wider necessarily, say, than the income tax gap. I think often VAT fraud gets a lot of attention because it makes good, um, uh, it makes good press. Um, but, you know, a few um, when you have a few youngsters w- with mobile phones managing to uh, execute multi-million euro VAT fraud, uh, frauds, that gets a lot of attention, whereas some of the kind of evasion that goes on with the income tax doesn't get such headlines. So I don't want to downplay the problems of the VAT, but it's clear, I think, that many of these problems we shouldn't overstate in terms of their importance. We should recognise that all taxes have had similar issues. And I think there are there are ways in which we can address some of these. I think coming back to digitalization, there's a lot of interesting initiatives now. Um, and in a way, there's a bit of an arms race, I think, between tax administrations who can be um, adept at using digital methods, but also fraudsters too. We know um, we know there have been very clever 
use of digital technologies to to exploit some of the processes that tax administrations use. So I, I don't think one should be despondent about the VAT. And it's um, notable, I think, that a number of countries, uh, countries that have kind of got rid of the VAT, I think there may be five or six uh, that have introduced the VAT and got rid of it. They've all reintroduced it in some, with one exception so far. They've all reintroduced it, which certainly suggests to me that the VAT, particularly at the levels of revenue that we're talking about, is a potentially very effective, uh, arguably um, effective and useful tax, probably more so, I'd say, than the sales tax. But I should let Joel give his views on the on the U.S. sales tax approach. Yeah, um, we are the most notable country that does not have a federal value-added tax. We're now 160 more and more countries have one. Um, we don't have a federal retail sales tax either, but... Last time I looked, 45 of our 50 states have a retail sales tax. And so you asked whether a retail sales tax is less susceptible to fraud than a value-added tax. And I I would say, in principle, the answer to that question is no. I think structurally, the value-added tax is actually better um, than a retail sales tax because the weakest link in the uh, chain of tax collection is the um, chain between retailers and sales to final consumers. And obviously a retail sales tax, that's where all the revenue is. And for a value added tax, it's only a a relatively small piece. So, I mean, certainly a fraud of a value added tax is an issue. As Mick said, it's an issue for all taxes. But I certainly wouldn't recommend um, uh, a, a retail sales tax as the uh, panacea for eliminating fraud. Maybe there's even a, a story from my book that illustrates some of this, which is um, in the early 18th century in, in England, we had a problem with people drinking gin, kind of excessive crime and un- general unpleasantness on the street. So the um, government introduced a tax on gin again in the spirit of changing behavior rather than raising revenue. <clears throat> but initially they imposed it at the retail stage. And that really didn't work, nothing happened because even in London, there were thousands of retailers and the imposing tax at the retail stage just didn't work. Um, and they kept trying this, increasing the rate and so on until they hit on the idea, well, <clears throat> why don't we level the tax at the wholesale, wholesale stage instead? because there were only about 12 uh, wholesalers in London. And then the tax worked and um, consumption began to fall. So they hadn't quite cottoned on to the idea of a value-added tax, didn't quite realise the full uh, beauty to some of us of a value-added tax, but they certainly realised, well, actually, to Joel's point, you know, putting all your reliance on collecting tax at the retail stage may not be such a great uh, great idea. Just a couple of words on, on the latest news about the 1st of July, announcements about Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, taxation of multinationals in the market countries and the global minimum corporate tax. What's your take? Is this just the beginning of some uh, bigger plan? Well, from my from my side, I mean, I, I think the headline is, that, for me at least, that these are really historic, uh, historic developments that even, you know, two or three years ago, um, the things that we're talking about now were, well, almost things you couldn't talk about in polite tax society, you know, particularly the idea that um, that some taxing rights might be given to the uh, market countries. 
to me, an element of destination-based taxation. I would say four or five years ago, um, it was almost unheard of, or almost, I say, impolite to, to refer to destination-based taxation, <clears throat> to say, and, and to say also to say anything that might um, weaken the scope of the arm's-length pricing principle <clears throat> was also very uh, impolite. So I think that the fact that we've accepted conceptually both of those notions is a real uh, step forward and um, uh, to me a very welcome one. Similarly, <clears throat> I think with the, with the pillar two notion of minimum taxation, and it certainly ties in with discussion we have in the book, as we were mentioning about um, the need for greater international coordination, the risk of um, uh, mutually damaging tax competition. Um, I think I wouldn't speculate on where this might uh, where this might lead. Um, of course, some people will uh, you know, some people will find the system complicated and rather not uh, a kind of a mixture of of, uh, of of different principles. But I think from my side, I would simply um, really congratulate people involved in the process in actually being pretty open to to new and I think um, potentially helpful approaches to international tax. I think the idea of a global minimum tax is aimed at a real problem in the international tax system. I think there's no question that some jurisdictions uh, tried to um, act in a parasitical way on the revenues of other countries. Sometimes they're called tax havens, but I think everyone knows what I'm talking about. So I think it's a real issue that I'm happy to see the international tax community try to address. I am not convinced that a global minimum tax is going to be easy to implement. And um, that's because you can't just uh, assign a minimum statutory tax rate and expect that we'll get rid of the problem. There are many, many ways countries can become attractive for tax reasons other than the statutory rate. So I think the devil is in the details here, but I look forward to seeing ideas about how to make it work. And you partially, Joel, touched upon uh, the problems of, can you comment something on your perspective would this uh, global minimum taxation somehow limit the aggressive tax planning through offshores i think in principle it can and uh, as i said i think it's a worthwhile endeavor to think about how to change the rules to minimize that problem i i think it's a very difficult problem though i mean the information sharing agreements that are uh, in place now i think for individual a tax evasion are a promising start. I'm sure your listeners know about the U.S. Uh, FATCA, the Foreign Foreign Account mm. Tax Compliance Act, that many many countries have now um, have legislation or regulations like that. I think these are very promising. We don't have a lot of compelling evidence about their consequences, how successful they've been, but I think it's absolutely. Uh, the right way to go to think about inf uh, international sharing of tax information to make enforcement uh, better. And it will be interesting to see many aspects how these ideas will develop. For example, Latvia and Estonia have different corporate tax system that the corporate tax is deferred to the moment of distribution of profits. So basically, then uh, it will be interesting to see whether these countries will be 
push to uh, change their systems where we see that Estonia already have kept out of the agreement of these uh, more than 130 countries. So it will be an interesting development to monitor. Right. I'm thankful for you. <laughs> really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, traditionally, at the end of the conversation, I ask my guests on more philosophical note about uh, your version of uh, meaning of life. <laughs> Well, I'll give you my version of the meaning of life. Uh, to me, um, if you look forward to going to work and you look forward to go coming home from work, you have a good life. Brilliant. And you, Mick? Try to top that, Mick. It's kind of above <laughs> my pay grade, I think, these questions. No, I, I kind of just, um, I'm just a great believer in uh, kindness and forgiveness. Seems to me two great virtues that we should be trying to use, display every day. Right. I'll let you know. When, I'll let you know when I have the answer. Don't worry. <laughs> Perfect. That would be a bigger seller. I think. <laughs> Maybe one day we will make another episode of the podcast. Yeah. Very Perfect. good. Thank you for Thank having you. Us. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It was uh, really a pleasure, fun. and I really enjoyed the book as well. Thank you. Okay. So long. Have a good one. See you later. Have a good day. Bye. See you, man. Bye.